you have your Bibles, you turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, as we kick off a series that I'm really, really excited to kick off. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2. We're just going to look at verses 13 through 17. In Mark, it's, he's called Levi. Most scholars believe that this is the same man that we know as Matthew. And so we see a similar account in Matthew chapter 9. So we're going to see him as Levi, and I'm going to use those two names interchangeably today, and I don't want to throw anybody off, all right? So Matt, Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. He says, he went out, that being Jesus, went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Can we pray to the Lord together this morning? Heavenly Father, how thankful I am that you didn't come from the, for the strong, but for the weak. You didn't come for the well, but for the sick. Because, Lord, I count myself among them. Lord, you came not for those that could show you their resume and impress the world, but for those that were outcasts, those that were in the margins, those that were overlooked, those that were looked down upon. And Lord, seeing that rotten box of rocks, you said that, that is the building blocks of my kingdom. So this morning, I pray that you would begin what you're going to do over the next four weeks and that you would just flat out amaze us with who Jesus is. Leave us astonished at the goodness and the grace of why Jesus came. Give us a clearer understanding of his mission, of what he sought to accomplish, and what he ultimately did accomplish when he was crucified on the cross and then raised from the dead. Lord, use this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, Christmas is really a time of expectation, isn't it? It's a time in which we remember that for thousands of years the, the Bible had anticipated that the Messiah was going to come. That then in the first century there were thousands of people among the people of God that were expecting that the Messiah was soon. And that, that expectation was realized, that anticipation was, was joyfully realized when that baby was born in the manger of Bethlehem. It's also a time in which we remember that his first coming is an assurance of his second. And so we wait with hopeful expectation that the sky is going to split and the trumpets are going to sound and our Messiah is going to return for his church. And it's in that way that gift giving has something to teach us about Christmas, isn't it? First of all, we understand that Jesus is a gift from God to us, that Jesus that is the result of God loving the world. And because he so loved the world, he gave his only son. But we also recognize that it has to do with expectation. That's one of the ways that giving gifts teaches about the nature of Christmas. That we give and we anticipate the giving of the gift, don't we? 
when you picked out just the right gift or you've you put a lot of thought into what you're going to get to your wife or your kids it's exciting to be able to give the gift and there's anticipation on receiving the gift when you know a good gift is coming from that person that knows you better than anybody else there's there's anticipation and there's expectation i know for us the hell household there has the expectations have never been higher okay um, we're, we're, our family's at a really neat age in that my youngest is finally old enough to where, like, Christmas is a big deal. It's on his radar for the first time, you know, and, like, he's really, like, into putting up the decorations and watching all the presents and doing all the things, and my oldest is at the age in which she's old enough to start asking for the big stuff, you know, the stuff that really costs some coin. You know, you can't take all what the grandparents gave him and put, put around the tree and pretend like it was for mom and dad anymore, right? Uh, like, like you, have to go, you have to go all in, and so there, there's a tension there in gift giving as well, isn't there? That the higher the expectations, the more likely it is for there to be disappointment, right? All of us that have given gifts know what that feeling is. You know as you give it to your boyfriend or your girlfriend, your husband, your wife, your kids, that, that you've put a lot of thought, you've made an investment, you've made the purchase, you've done the thing, and you give it, and you're just like so worried that it's not going to land, that the present's not going to take, right? There's this concern that if I give the gift, it's not going to be received in the spirit that I intend for it to be received. And that has something to teach us about the first Christmas. You know, what's interesting, and what is often overlooked, I think, is that for those who most anticipated the coming of the Messiah, those who were most expectant of the coming of the Messiah, were ranked among those who were most disappointed when they met Jesus. That Jesus was not who they thought he would be. Jesus did not meet the expectations that they had for him. But brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't come to meet our expectations. Jesus came to meet the requirements of justice and grace. In fact, what we're going to see over the next four weeks is that Jesus explicitly tells us why he came. And this matters during Advent. Advent is a Latin word that means coming. It, it literally means coming. And so it's, in some sense, thinking about Jesus' first Advent, his first coming. And it is the anticipation of his second Advent, his second coming. And that means it's really, really appropriate for us to think, why did Jesus come? Well, there are just a handful, about a half a dozen times in the Gospels in which Jesus says... I came to. I came that. That Jesus explicitly clarifies for us, his disciples, the nature of his mission. The reason that he came. And we're going to look at four of those over the next four weeks during this Advent season. And we're going to start this week by seeing why it is that people were disappointed when they met Jesus. Why those who were so expected and hopeful for the Messiah didn't have their expectations met in the way that they expected for them to do. And that's because Jesus called unexpected disciples. I, in my opinion, well actually, you know what, I'm not even going to say it's an opinion. I'm going to say this is fact. The 1992 Dream Team is the greatest assembled team in the history of sports. And honestly, I'll be, I won't even hear anything to, to, otherwise. I don't want to hear about any 20s, I don't, I don't want to hear about anything else, okay? Now, for all of my Gen Z friends, let me, let me give you some context for the 1992 Dream Team, okay? That was the first year that the Olympic Committee said that NBA players could participate in the Olympic Games. Before that, you're not, I know this is hard to imagine, before that it was all college basketball players, and back then college basketball players weren't paid, at least allegedly, right? Um, but mostly, they, they, they weren't paid. They were all amateurs, okay? But in 92, NBA players were allowed to participate in the Olympic Games, and so the United States, they 
decked. They decked their lineup, okay? We're talking first ballot Hall of Famers, most of whom were all in their pride. Let, let me just let me throw some names out there for you, all right? We're talking 92 Michael Jordan, okay? We're on the front side of Air Jordan's reign. We're talking Scottie Pippen. We're talking Larry Bird. You ever heard of Larry the Legend? We're talking Magic Johnson. We're talking Clyde the Glide Drexler. The round mound of rebound Charles Barkley. We're talking the mailman Carl. Can I get an amen in the house? Y'all know what I'm saying? Hey, they went to the gold and they defeated their opponents. Not like Florida State beat Louisville yesterday. I'm sorry. Too soon. Too soon. Uh, they beat them by an average of 44 points, okay? They are the greatest assembled team in the history. And when we think about putting together a team, this is the kind of team that we think about putting together, isn't it? When we want to put together a team, we're, we're thinking, okay, where are the best? Where is the elite? And you would think that if the Son of God is going to leave the throne of heaven, the right hand of the Almighty, to come and dwell here among earth, to put together a team to revolutionize and transform the earth, that he would be looking for the dream team. But Jesus didn't even look for the B team. Jesus went and he chose sinners and tax collectors, fishermen and tax collectors. Now why is that? Why did Jesus take a different approach to building a team than the approach that you and I would take? It's because he doesn't see what we see. He doesn't see what we see. You see, seeing is actually what's driving forward, forward this passage from Mark chapter 2. What does it say there in verse 14? And as he passed, what? He saw. Now skip down to verse 16. We see an alternative perspective. Verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they what? When they saw. That the idea of seeing is driving forth the whole concept of what's happening here in Mark chapter 2. Now, what they saw were, was a tax collector. What they saw was a house filled with tax collectors were the scribes of the Pharisees. Now, why that matters for you to understand is you have to recognize that a tax collector was flat out the worst of the worst. Okay, These were the scum of society. When Rome would go in and they would occupy a society, what they would do is they would actually put out bids for the job of tax collector. And so it was for the people, their fellow countrymen would bid out and they would compete for those jobs and whoever could promise to Rome the largest amount of money in return would win that bid. And then they could price gouge because they had the force of the Roman centurions behind them. They could price gouge, charge way over what the tax rate was and they could keep everything that was not owed to Rome for themselves and so they would get incredibly incredibly rich but they were viewed as though they were a first century mafia this is like ISIS occupying America and someone from in our congregation going to work for ISIS so that they could profit for, for the Jew they literally saw the tax collectors as worse than the Roman occupiers they were declared perpetually unclean that is, they were not allowed to participate in the worship of the synagogue or of the temple. If a tax collector, a Jewish tax collector, came to your house and touched the walls of your house, your house was deemed to be unclean. Okay, These were the kinds of people that you went out of your way in every way possible to avoid. But not Jesus. But not Jesus. Why? Jesus didn't see what the Pharisees saw. Jesus didn't see what the Pharisees saw. The scribes and the Pharisees, what they saw is they saw what all of these men had done. 
What they saw is they saw what all of their record had shown themselves to be. What they saw was all of their sins. What they saw was all of their mistakes. What they saw is how they had wronged everyone. What they saw was who they are. But not Jesus. Jesus didn't see them for what they had done. Jesus didn't see them for who they were. Jesus saw them for who God had created them to be and for who he would transform them to be. That Jesus didn't see them for what they had done. Jesus saw them for what he would do on their account. And we ought to stop ourselves for a second and ask, are we looking with the eyes of the Pharisee? Are we looking with the eyes of the Pharisee? Do we have the eyes of the Pharisee or do we have the eyes of Jesus? Because this affects how you see yourself. This affects how you see yourself. I wonder how, if you look at your life, if your entire reality is wallpapered with, with the collection of your failures. You look around your life and all you see is your divorce. All you see is your infidelity. All you see is who you were in high school or who you were in college. All you see is your parenting mistakes or the investment that you made that didn't work out or the debt that you've accumulated. You look around all of your reality and what you see is nothing but brokenness. And you think, who am I? I am worthless scum. I am the kind of person that should be a avoided by everyone. Can I just say that's not how Jesus sees you? That's not how Jesus sees you. Jesus doesn't see you for what you've done. Jesus doesn't see you for your high school uh, behavior. Jesus doesn't see you for what you did in the frat house. Jesus doesn't see you for your divorce. Jesus doesn't label you with your infidelity. Jesus doesn't label you. Jesus sees you through the finished work of the cross. But it doesn't just affect how you see yourself, does it? It affects the way you see other people. When you see other people, are you looking with the eyes of Jesus or are you looking with the eyes of the Pharisees? Do you look and you see people sing and you think, how in the world can that person justify being on the praise team? Do they not know what they've done? How can that person come and lift their hands up in the church? I know who they were in high school. I know who they were in college. I know their backstory. I know how much debt they have. I know about their divorce. I know about their infidelity. I know what they've done. Brothers and sisters, Brothers and sisters, can we not look with Jesus' eyes? Can we not look with the eyes of the cross? Can we not view our brothers and sisters as works of grace, as miracles of mercy, as purchased by the blood of Jesus, nailed to the cross? Because that, that is what Jesus sees. See, because Jesus doesn't see what we see, he doesn't use who we would use. You think about the characters in this story, and you were building a team. Who would you use? Okay, let, let, let's 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 think about the characters. First, you got Matthew. Matthew is literally robbing people when we meet him. Okay, he is sitting there like a thug trying to steal from his people that he can get rich and go home to his lush lifestyle. That's a no go. All right. The next group of people that we meet, that's the that's the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, there's a lot of dispute over the what is referred to by the sinners. Some people think that these are literally the scum, like the worst of the worst, that they can only be described as the sinners. Some think that they're the people that weren't focused on the law because they were so focused on living and subsisting that they really had no time for the law. But we know, whatever the case, they were categorized in their society as sinners. Well, that's a no-go, right? Like, we're not looking for the weak ones we're not looking for the ones on the edges. We're not looking for the ones that are rejected by the culture. We're not looking for the ones that don't blend into society. We're not looking there. Then there's the scribes of the Pharisees, right? Not just the Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees, okay? A scribe was like a lawyer, right? 
So you had the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were a prominent group, and they were the, the theologically conservative group in their day. They were the ones, honestly, with what, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Pharisees were the ones that Jesus aligned with most closely in his theology. They were the ones that upheld the law. Most of them had memorized, certainly if they were a scribe or a lawyer, had memorized all of the first five books of the Bible. Like Leviticus, they knew it by heart. Deuteronomy, they knew it by heart. Numbers, they knew it by heart. Some of them had all of the prophets memorized. Like we just studied Ezekiel, okay? That's a thick book, y'all. That's a thick book. That it memorized, memorized, okay? Like these were the people that were theologically, uh, theologically aware. They were biblically astute. They were, they were spiritually committed. That's the crew, isn't it? Every expectation is that these are the ones that you're going to use to build your team. Except Jesus never uses who we expect him to use, does he? Jesus uses the most unexpected people to accomplish the most extraordinary work. That what Jesus does is Jesus sees a tax collector sitting in his tax booth and he says, that's the man that I'm going to use to build my church in Ethiopia. And in fact, Matthew would be martyred as a missionary building the church in Ethiopia. Reminds me of when I was a youth pastor. One year, between her ninth and 10th grade year, I had this shy, uh, this shy girl in our group and over the course of the summer, I began to notice that she would come every single Wednesday night and she would pray. Wednesday night after Wednesday night, and this was, this was out of character for her. She wasn't really the, the type to go in front of, of people. She was painfully shy. And week after week, she would, and eventually I just reached out and said, Sydney, is there something going on that we can help you with? I've noticed that you've been, you've been praying each week. And she said, Cody, I have a group of friends. I, I sit around the same group of friends Every single day at lunch at school. And she said, I know that I'm supposed to tell them about Jesus. And I know that I'm supposed to invite them to church. I'm just too afraid. I'm too shy. And so I've told the Lord that what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray every single week for, at the altar for my friends. That the Lord would give me courage and boldness to share, them, the good, share with them the good news of Jesus and to invite them to church. And every single Wednesday, Wednesday after Wednesday after Wednesday, she would pray and she would pray and she would pray. And over the course of the next year, do you know what happened? It's an emotional thing about five of them came to follow Jesus. Five of them. You know who one of them was? Keith Wilson, who is currently a teacher and a deacon right now at Iron City Baptist Church. She's not the one that you would have expected. But praise God, she's the one that Jesus used. She's the one that Jesus used. I have good news for you. Jesus is not concerned with your resume. Jesus isn't looking for your resume. Jesus isn't looking for your seminary education. Jesus isn't looking for how well-endowed you are. Jesus isn't looking for how well-raised you are. Jesus isn't looking at how good you were in high school. Je Jesus isn't looking for all of that. Jesus is not looking for your resume. Jesus is looking for whether or not you are willing to leave the tax booth and follow after him. If you're willing to leave the tax booth and follow after him, it doesn't matter who you've robbed. It doesn't matter what your story is. It doesn't matter what you know or don't know. If you will follow after him, Jesus will use you. Because he doesn't see what you see, and he doesn't use who you'd use. He's an unexpected Messiah. And Jesus kept unexpected company. You know, we, we've often heard it said, right, that it's not what you know that matters. It's who you know that matters, right? 
and, and maybe even more precisely, it's who knows you, right? There's lots of people that I know, and they don't know who I am, right? So it's not just who you know, it's, it's who knows you in return. And we, that makes sense to us, right? Like we understand that our upward mobility in our, in our position, in our jobs, in our livelihoods, perhaps in our, in our social status, is largely contingent upon the relationships that we have with other people and the circles that we run with, and, and those can open up opportunities for us so that we can have some upward mobility in our lives. And so perhaps we even train our children that they need to be really good at networking. Can I just tell you something? Jesus Christ gets an F in networking. He gets an F in networking. That he had all of the wrong friends, okay? When Matthew meets Jesus, he doesn't just meet his Messiah. He doesn't just meet his Savior. He doesn't just meet a rabbi. He doesn't just meet a teacher. You know who Matthew meets? He meets a friend. He meets a friend. And this is indicated in that what's the very first thing that Matthew does when he leaves the tax booth to follow after Jesus? Jesus, we've got to celebrate. We've got to celebrate. I've got money, by the way, Jesus, so let's throw a party. I've got a big house, let's throw a party. And so they all go to Levi's house, and they, they're throwing this big party, and the only people that will come are the only people that will be seen in public with Matthew. And that's the other degenerates who are just like Matthew, right? It's all the sinners and all the tax collectors. They'll come and they gather together. Now, to understand the scene... You have to understand what the culture was like. In those days, it was an honor-shame culture. We have a little bit of this in the South. We're a little bit of an honor-shame culture, but not to the degree that they were in first-century Israel, in first-century Galilee. In those days, you were what your social status said you were, and it was not going to change. That the group of people that accepted you determined where your standing was in society. And if we even go beyond that, then the disciples that a rabbi had, the, the good of the disciples, how good the disciples were, how smart their, the disciples were, how well-respected the disciples were, really was an indication of how good, smart, well-respected, well-studied the rabbi was. Okay, So what we have here is a picture of Jesus hanging out with all the wrong disciples and all the wrong friends in all the wrong places. That he, Garth Brooks wasn't the first one with friends in low places, right? And the picture, he sa it says here that he reclined at the table. Now, this is something that communicates intimacy, okay? That if you had a guest that you didn't know very well, he was an acquaintance, he was someone that you were a neighbor, you would come and have a meal in your home. This is a, a, a hospitality culture. You would come in, you would have a meal, and you would eat at the table. But now... When the guys came over to watch the game, okay, when, when, when the friends came to town, when those that you were close, when family was there, you didn't sit at the table, okay? That, that's, where, that's where strangers sat. You went and you reclined on the couch. Or, or there would be food in the middle and you would all lay on an elbow around the plate and the, the feet to the outside. And you would just lay there and, and you got comfortable with one another. And it was a sign that, that we're friends, that, that, that you're, you're like family in my house. So here's a picture of Jesus. Jesus is not just tolerating the sinners and the tax collectors. Jesus is loving them. Jesus is befriending them. Jesus is reclining at the table, having intimate fellowship with them. That Jesus is doing the unthinkable. He is lowering his status that he might be connected with all of these other people. And this is why it scandalizes the scribes of the Pharisees. So they come and think, 
what in the world is this guy doing? He's got crowds of people following him. He's leading miracles. People are saying that he might be the Messiah, that this might be the David, that this is the one that we're looking for. And here he is, and he's hanging out with Matthew, and he's hanging out in Matthew's house, and he's dining with all the people, and they're scandalized by the concept. What Mark is showing us is Mark is showing us with whom Jesus is going to build his kingdom. Mark is showing us and drawing out for us to see in high definition the types of materials that Jesus is going to use to build his kingdom. And it's not the polished marble. It's the cracked, deteriorated, worthless, cast out onto the trash heap rocks. See, it ought to never shock us, but always amaze us with whom Jesus uses to build his kingdom. Because he uses me, and he uses you. It ought to amaze us that Jesus, Jesus wants to be seen in public with me. You recognize that you do nothing to raise Jesus' status. You recognize that? Like, people don't think more highly of Jesus because he hangs out with you. We have nothing that we bring to the table. And that is the best news in the whole world. Because you know what that means? That Jesus doesn't love you for what you can do for him. And Jesus doesn't love you for what he needs out of you. Jesus loves you just because he loves you. Jesus hangs out with you. Do you know why? Not because he tolerates you. Because he likes you. Because he just wants to be with you. Because he desires a relationship with you. Some of you have no framework for a relationship like that at all in your life. Your parents didn't teach you that. Your husband, your wife hasn't taught you that. But I'm here to tell you, that's who Jesus is. And that's the relationship that he offers to you. That you might think you're the wrong kind of friend for Jesus. And Jesus says the wrong kinds of friends are the right kind of friend for me. Those are the ones with whom I will build my kingdom. But Jesus didn't just have the wrong friends. He had the wrong enemies. I want you to place yourself in the shoes of those disciples all those years ago, okay? Now, we, we know for a fact, Mark tells us, Matthew tells us, we know for a fact that Peter's already there, Andrew's already there, James is already there, John's already there, all right? They're already walking with Jesus. They're already trying to, to acclimate to a different lifestyle than anything that they had come to expect, anything that had come before them. They've left the fishing boats and the nets and the whole nine yards, and they're following after Jesus, and they're spending every waking second with one another and with Jesus, and that's enough in of itself to test every last nerve that you have, right? And then just imagine... What they think is they are acclimating and still trying to understand who this, who this man is that they've begun to follow. When he looks at a tax collector and says, all right, you're going to live with us too. They're, most of us are peacing out at that point, right? Most of us are peacing out when, when uh, John Gotti gets invited into the discipleship crew, Right? Like, I, I didn't sign up for this. I, I signed up to hang out with Peter. He's kind of got a big mouth. I signed up to hang out with John. He's kind of self-righteous. I signed up to hang out with all them. But I draw the line at Matthew. Like, I'm not hanging out with him every day. And then, and then they find themselves living or partying in Matthew's house. They're not just hanging out with Matthew. They're in Matthew's house hanging out with all of his, all of his rowdy friends. Like, this is worst-case scenario. And who is confronted by the scribes of the Pharisees? Jesus isn't the one that's confronted, right? Perhaps there's cowardice, or perhaps there's a purpose. 
Verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to whom? To his disciples. This was social suicide. You understand? This was social suicide. The Sadducees had all of the political clout. But the Pharisees had the populace. They had the influence with the common people. They were the kinds of people that could make everyone label you as a, as a righteous person or as an outcast. They were the ones that could have you labeled as, as someone that was, that was righteous and pure in God's eyes. Or one of those that, were, that God was going to bring judgment. And that in fact had invited the Romans to come and, and live among you. And to be hung, hanging out now with Jesus and Matthew and all the sinners and the tax collectors. If you're in the position of the disciples. You're in the position in which you have to decide whether or not you're willing to let your family be shamed, and your name be shamed, and your business be shamed, and everything about you be shamed because of your affiliation with Jesus. See, there's a tension. There's a tension for those disciples, and there's a tension for you and me. It's not just here that Jesus is willing to be seen with you. It's, are you willing to be seen with Jesus? It's different, isn't it? You have to leave the tax booth. You have to follow after Jesus. You have to go where Jesus is calling and do what Jesus is saying. And it may be social suicide for you to do it. Are you willing at your high school to have your reputation damaged because you hang out with Jesus? Are you willing for other people to think that you're too good or you're too this or you're not enough that because you are going to take a stand for Jesus? Are you willing to be ostracized at work and not invited to the, to the company parties and not uh, looked up at for uh, promotions because you are seen as too radical and too extreme in your love for Jesus? Are you willing to be seen by our society as those who are on the wrong side of history and too narrow-minded and, and those that are, are too backwards in their way? Are you willing to commit the social suicide of being identified with Jesus as cultural Christianity falls by the wayside and as we are called evermore to leave all that is comfortable and leave all that makes sense to follow after the Lord Jesus? Well, Jesus is willing to be seen with you, but are you willing to be seen with him? Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. What about you? And Jesus came with an unexpected mission. Jesus came with an unexpected mission. You know, I have always wanted to be one of those men that didn't say anything unless he had something really profound to say. Like, I've always wanted to be one of those quiet types that, that really thought about my words and Everybody kind of wondered what I, I'm just not, okay? I, I think out loud, I talk out loud, I, I, I'll, I'll talk to anybody about anything at any time. I'll argue with anybody about any. I, 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 I learned that way, I grow that way. But I've always admired the kind of man that was a man of few words but great insight. I think about Dale Turner, I've mentioned I think this to you before. Among our elders, Dale is really the quiet one. He's the one that is the, the man of a few words and and. and, 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 and when he talks, Tony and I have to be quiet so that we can hear what he has to say, right? That, 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 that's our personality. And, and so when Dell talks, I have to lean in. Now, I don't just lean in so that I, because I want to hear what he says. I do want to hear what he says. I have to lean in so that I can hear what he says. But he's a low talker too, right? Like he, he talks very, very, very softly. 
And, and there's something of that happening in Mark that's important for us to see. Each of the biblical writers have a particular style of their writing. They have a, a particular personality and a particular way in which they're communicating to us about the person of Jesus, not just in what they say, but in how they say it. Okay, And if you study the Gospel of Mark, what you'll find is that throughout the Gospel of Mark, he doesn't quote Jesus very often. Jesus doesn't say many things. That, that in the Gospel of Mark, that Mark mostly describes the actions of Jesus and the works of Jesus, and then Jesus will be quoted in just a few, we, we see that here in our text now, don't we? He'll be quoted just a little bit, and the purpose of him quoting is so that you'll lean in a little bit. And let Jesus clarify for you why he is doing what he's doing and who he is. And here at the end of Mark chapter 2, in verses 16 and 17, Mark is inviting us to lean in. And he's inviting the Pharisees to lean in. Because the Pharisees' misunderstanding of what Jesus is doing by dining with the sinners and the tax collectors is because they misunderstand fundamentally his mission. And he's inviting the Pharisees to lean in. And you and I to lean in that we can hear Jesus himself clarify the nature of his mission. So I want you to see the understanding. They misunderstood what they needed, that being they being the Pharisees. See, they believed that their biggest problem was Rome. They, they believed that what they needed is they needed a mighty military leader that was going to come and be able to come in and storm the gates of Rome and reestablish the empire of Israel and the theocracy of the old covenant to be able to recapture the glory of David and to be, be able to even expand the glory of David. And so what they thought their responsibility was was to make themselves as strong and as pure as possible. And by keeping the law, have you ever wondered why the Pharisees kept the law the way they did? By keeping the law, they thought they could reverse the curses of the old covenant that we saw in the prophets, and by reversing the covenant, bring in and hurry up and expedite the coming of the Messiah that would deliver the people, okay? So they saw themselves as the foot soldiers in the Messiah's army. That's who they saw themselves as, because they believed that what they needed was a politician. Does this ring true? Does this ring true? What kind of savior do we think we need? Do we think we need better congressmen? Do we think we need a better president? Do we think we need a better Supreme Court? Maybe our expectations aren't being met by Jesus either. But what ends up happening is they come and, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. That, that's not who I am. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick. That Jesus comes and he doesn't meet their expectations. The reason that Jesus doesn't meet their expectations is they don't recognize what their real need is. Their biggest problem isn't Rome. Their biggest problem is their own hearts. That they're filled with self-righteousness and they're filled with pride and they're filled with, with an air of supremacy that makes them believe that they are unstoppable and that they are God's favorites. And Jesus says, this is the evidence that you need me, not who you expect me to be. See, the problem with the Pharisees was that they were too strong for Jesus. Now, I don't mean that they, by saying that they were too strong for Jesus, they were unconquerable by Jesus. That would be blasphemy. What I mean is, is they were too strong to believe that they needed to humble themselves before Jesus. They were too strong to believe that they needed Jesus' righteousness and not their own righteousness. They were too strong to believe that they needed grace and mercy and that they were not enough in and of themselves. They misunderstood what they needed and because they misunderstood what they needed, they misunderstood whom he saved. 
So Jesus tells them, he invites us to lean in and to say, no, 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 you think that I came to save those who are the spiritually elite. You think that I came to save those who had memorized all of the Bible. You think that I've come to save those who are strong, but I have come to deliver those who are sick. I have come to rescue those who are weak. Those of you who are strong, you need saving and you don't even see it. You're dead and you don't even realize it. You're terminal and you don't even, you aren't even looking for the cure. Those aren't the ones that I've come to save. I've come to save those who are sinners and tax collectors who recognize that they need help, that recognize they aren't enough, that recognize that they're weak and infirm and need a deliverance, not just from the armies of Rome, but from the hell that is bound for their sin. See, church. We often understand who, misunderstand who Jesus saves too, don't we? I think about what Jesse Ventura says. Je- Jesse Ventura, said, he, he's famously said, organized religion is a crutch for weak-minded people who need strength in numbers. Can I tell you something? I quite agree with him. Christianity is the only faith system for which it is a prerequisite that you recognize that you're not enough. That you're weak. In fact, what we recognize is that all of us are weak. It's just us that are willing to admit it and embrace it and have Jesus overcome it on our behalf. You see, we ought to normalize weakness in the life of the church. Because that's who Jesus has come to save. That's who Jesus has come to rescue. We ought to normalize brokenness in the life of the church. This ought to be the one place where it's okay. It doesn't matter what you did last weekend. It doesn't matter what you did 10 years ago. It doesn't matter what your marital status is. It doesn't matter what, what is waiting on you for when you get home. It, it doesn't matter what your reputation in the community is. It doesn't matter what your likes on Facebook say. It doesn't matter. If you're broken and you're weak and you're sick and you're infirm, you're in the right place. Because let me tell you, You're not enough. You're not enough. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You're not together enough. You're not wise enough. You're not smart enough. You're not enough. But Jesus is enough. But Jesus is enough. And Jesus has come for you. And Jesus wants you. And Jesus loves you. And Jesus is willing to commit the social suicide of hanging out for you. Not just hanging out with you, but laying down his life on your behalf, being crucified on your behalf, that he might be reconciled with you. See, there's a subtle but beautiful picture that's easy to miss if you don't pay attention. I want you to think about the picture of Matthew chapter 9, or Matthew chapter 9, or Mark chapter 2 for that matter. (laughs) You you have there at the dining room table, there at the dining room table, you have the Lord Jesus, the, the Word who became flesh. In the beginning, He was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and He is dwelling there, and there around the table are all the people that nobody else in society wants to be around, the people that everybody else thinks is made clean, and they're sitting there at the dining room table hanging out with Jesus. And you know what all the experts say must have been happening? That around Matthew's house, there would have been an outer court 
And in the outer court, that's where you find the scribes of the Pharisees, the men that think they know the Bible, the men who think they have done many great works in Jesus' name, but before whom Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And what are they doing? Oh, they're not at the dining room table. They're looking through the windows to see what fellowship really looks like. They're looking through the windows to see what love really looks like. Looking through the windows to see what grace really looks like. Looking through the windows to see what the church really looks like. And it brings to our mind another separation and another meal that is going to come. Revelation 19 says that at the end of the age, in the second advent, in the return of the Christ, that when he comes, there is going to be a wedding supper. That there is going to be a dining room table. And around the dining room table of the Lord Jesus is going to be invite only invite only and around those that have been invited are going to be sinners and tax collectors the divorce and the and the married it's going to be the prostitute and the and the preacher all of us gathered around a single table with the lord jesus and we're going to be fellowshipping with him and we're going to be hanging on with him and those in the outer courts of darkness are going to be looking through the windows for what it looks like can i ask you what about you What about you? The question this morning is not, are you good enough to be saved by Jesus? The question is, are you willing to be weak enough to be saved by Jesus? Oh, you're not enough, friend. But Jesus is. Can we pray together? Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.